I've been looking forward to coming to Gadsden again, and I, I'm thankful that you are here, and I, I hope the Lord will give you a, a special blessing for coming out on a cold night and on a Friday night at that, and uh, just meeting with an old Baptist preacher that loves the Word and loves the Lord and loves you. And, uh, and I'm thankful that I'm among a, a prayer-believing people. And I know that the subject matter for this weekend is going to be encouraging to us, but it's also going to be very challenging to us. Uh, when we talk about revival, uh, there's a lot of confusion today about what revival truly is and how revival actually happens or what brings about revival. I don't believe that revival can be scheduled. I don't think that we can schedule revival from 7 to 9 p.m. each night of the week, concluding uh, with a baptismal service on Sunday, as we see some advertise. That just lets us know in our culture we've lost sight of what biblical revival is about. Tonight, I'd like to lay a foundation, a foundation that is going to uh, be definitive. It's going to define what revival is and how revival comes. And later in our studies together, we're going to find actual patterns in the Scripture and uh, hopefully in the Old and the New Testament. And then we're going to find special application to the church as witnessed through the lens of the Acts of the Apostles. And that's going to be on Sunday, God willing. But as I prayed about how to present the, this kind of a study, I, I, I felt led to talk to you first from the 85th Psalm of David. And we're going to read several verses, but we're going to begin with Psalm chapter 85. Because Psalm chapter 85 is, is a, a psalm that is collective in nature. It's not just an individual asking for revival, but it is a, a nation asking for revival. In our case, it would be tonight a church asking for revival. And the truth is, revival actually begins in the heart of God's people. It's something that's experienced internally before it's experienced externally. That's why we're going to see some teaching that's kind of painful because we're going to have to deal with the issue of sin in our life. Now somebody says, well, Brother Jeff, I'm glad I'm here tonight and I don't have any sins to confess. I don't have any things wrong in my life. Well, how about pride? Did you know that pride is a sin? How about worry? Did you know that worry is a sin? Uh, how about covetousness? Did you know that that is a sin described in the Word of God as something that hinders revival, hinders personal growth, hinders the blessing of God upon a people? David is going to talk in terms I think that each of us can relate to. Because if you've tried to be a disciple of Christ for any length of time, you're going to acknowledge that it's not always easy 
There are times in the Christian experience where we feel a distance from God. There's times when we feel to be like Job. Uh, Job's complaint in Job 23. Remember, he, he was he was looking, he was searching for God. Where is he? Has he forgotten me? I look on the right hand, I can't find him. On the left hand, I can't find him. Where where has he gone? Has he actually forgotten me? You know, there's so many things going wrong in my life, or wrong in my understanding, or wrong in my church or nation. Has God just utterly forsaken us? I think many of us can relate to times and seasons when we were in the throes of discouragement. And to me, that's what this psalm is speaking to. In Psalm chapter 85, David is writing, he says, Lord, Thou hast been favorable unto Thy land. Now he's going to reflect on past blessings to begin with. There's a time when you were favorable. There's a time when we rejoice. There's a time when everything seemed to be going right. Everything was blessed and happy and, and, and blossoming. There was a time when you were favorable unto Thy land. Thou hast brought back the captivity of Jacob. Do you understand what that refers to? Uh, Judah had sinned against God and because of their sin, they went into captivity for a period of 70 years. But according to the promise of God, at the close of those seven decades, Judah was brought back in a remnant form to the land that God promised Abraham. David is calling that to mind. He's saying, you have brought back the captivity of Jacob or Israel. Thou hast forgiven the iniquity of thy people. Thou hast covered all their sins, Selah. With that Selah, that's a solemnizing of what he just said. He's saying, uh, he's saying, I'm not unthankful for what you've already given me. You see, sometimes we are, aren't we? Sometimes we become unthankful for what God's given us in the past. Whether it's physical, material, or spiritual blessings, somehow we often forget those things. And every time we do, uh, the Lord gives us a spanking because He's been far better to us than any of us could ever deserve. Do you believe that? David believed it. So he's going to call first to remembrance past blessings. He says, Lord, I, I know you brought back our people from bondage and you've kept your covenant. Uh, does anybody else remember what happened as the remnant began to come back from Babylon? Do you remember what was, what was built? What was the very first thing that was built or erected when Ezra led the first group of three Migrations back from Babylon. Does anybody remember that in studying Ezra and Nehemiah? The very first thing that Ezra built when he got back to the city of Jerusalem, remember, Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the city. He had destroyed the walls. He had destroyed something else. What did he destroy for the gold in it? The temple. The temple. That's right. Um, he had destroyed, and, and it was just a, a heap of stones. And Israel led that first migration of, of Jews back from Babylon, and the very first thing that they built was the altar. They built again the altar. 
and offered sacrifice to God for sin. And then he began to build the temple. There was a, then a period of persecution which the, stopped the work on the temple. You think the devil's only working today? He was working back then too. He stopped the building up of the temple, the church, for a period of time. But then in God's providence, He allowed the temple to be reconstructed. And then the third and final migration back from Babylon was under Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, in his ministry as governor of Judea, uh, rebuilt the walls and the gates of the city. So it was a safe habitation once again. Well, you and I tonight, uh, you know, we're living in a nation that has lost its way. Hi, come on in. You're, you're welcome. We're in Psalm chapter 85, if you have a Bible near you. Um, we're living in a day where there's a lot of things we look around that discourage us. I mean... Who can't look at Washington, D.C. and get discouraged? I mean, you know, the two justices that were appointed in recent weeks, who couldn't mourn over their liberalness and progressivism and and just ungodliness? Um, Who couldn't mourn over the economy? Or the fact that we are at so many conflicts around the world where military troops are at this moment standing in jeopardy of their very life. So many problems. Uh, you know, the, the typhoon in the Philippines, that, that uh, they're still counting bodies. It's over 6,000 people that they found and over 1,800 that they haven't found yet. You, 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 read, about, you read about things every day that are traumatizing, that that are what I call catastrophic. You know, it's just unbelievable how much death and darkness and doom there is in the world we're living in today. And when I come to the house of God, I, I want to come there to, as one brother prayed a moment ago, to find shelter from the storm. I want, for a little while, I want to be separated from the problems and the troubles that I find in this world and come and just rest at the feet of Jesus. But what happens when I come to the house of God and I don't see Jesus? When I come to the house of God and I don't feel like He's near me? When I come to the house of God... And my heart, I look at my heart where praise and worship is supposed to come from. I look at my heart and it's cold. Indifferent. Lethargic. Lazy. Um, careless. Especially about sin. What happens in that day? Is, is, uh, is there any course that we could uh, take that would bring about revival. That's what we're going to learn from this psalm. That's what we're going to learn from the history of Israel and the history of Judah particularly and in our studies uh, together this weekend. But what's, what's so interesting to me is how he words this. 
he says, I want to always remember how good you've been to me in the past. And that's what gives me confidence to come before your throne in the present so in some way my prayers can impact the future. Can I say something to you right now? If you're not asking for revival, don't expect it. Don't expect it. It won't happen. Because revival is something that's sought. It's sought through humility. It's sought through repentance. It's sought through confession. It's sought through zeal. It's sought through the study of God's Word. That's what we're doing here tonight. We're laying the foundation for what brings revival to God's people. He says in verse 3, He says, Thou hast taken away all thy wrath. Thou hast turned thyself from the fierceness of thine anger. Here He's saying, Lord, you know, we deserve a lot worse, but in Your mercy, You have forgiven us of our sins. Now that's going to be a key word for our study tonight. Mercy. Who can tell me the difference between mercy and grace? Are they the same? No. If they were the same, they'd be the same Greek and Hebrew word, but they're not. Neither one. In the Old Testament or the New Testament, they're drastically different words because they convey a drastically different thought. Who can tell me the definition of grace? You you should know that by heart. Lucas, you should know this. Grace is the unmerited favor of God bestowed upon an undeserving object. Now that's pretty simple. Grace is something given that you don't deserve. But what is mercy? Mercy is God keeping from you what you do deserve. Here, we find it interesting. In verse 4, David says, Turn us. He's including himself in this. I don't know about you, but I need revival. Brother Jim and I were talking before the service. I think he's very interested in this subject as well. Turn us, O God, of our salvation and cause thine anger toward us to cease. The word turn there is from a Hebrew word that means to restore. When we talk about revival, we're talking about restoration. Restoration of the fellowship that has been breached. The fellowship that has been broken with God. Now, granted, I believe in God's sovereignty. I believe He's omnipresent. He's everywhere present, nowhere absent. I believe that is biblically true uh, concerning God. But listen to me carefully on this point. Just because God is near doesn't mean that you realize He's near. Just because He's near doesn't mean that He's manifesting Himself to you. That's why we begin to get cold. (laughs) Really. That's where that coldness comes from. Because even though God is near, we don't see Him. We don't perceive Him. We don't uh, feel His presence or His pleasure in our life. So David is calling out to God and he's saying, God, turn us. Notice he didn't say, God, I want you to turn. Um, revival doesn't come until God's people are prepared and ready 
to turn to God with everything they are and everything they have or ever will be or will have. It's a total, total commitment. That's why we don't see it. That's why we don't experience it in many places. Now, in parts of the world, you'll see it. You'll see the evidences of revival. Uh, people say, well, I wish there, were, there, was more revi- there was more evangelism in America. Amen, brother. I do too. But I'm going to tell you something. There's not going to be uh, a restoration of uh, true evangelism and effective evangelism in America until there is a revival in His church. Evangelism is the outgrowth of reviving. No, the world says, no, what we need to do, we need to, we need to evangelize so we can experience revival. That's exactly opposite to the way the Bible teaches about revival. Revival occurs inwardly, then the witness of Christ and the Gospel uh, are, are effective externally. And it's got to be in that order. Or you've got a fake revival. You've got a false show of conversions that are not real and not lasting and not glorifying to God. He says, turn us. Why? Because we have turned away from Him. There is no such thing as a pain-free revival. It's going to take some turning. And some of us are kind of proud of our sins. Some of us are proud of our anger, proud of our unforgiveness, proud of our pride, proud of our uh, arrogance, or proud of our self-sufficiency. And that kind of pride is what hinders true revival from occurring. So David is saying, turn us, God. We're the ones that left, not God. We're the ones that left Him. O God of our salvation. He's tying something to revival that I believe is very pointed and very uh, very uh, graphic in all of the Scriptures. Revival and healing is speaking about the saving work of God in the midst of His people. O God of our salvation, and cause thine anger to cease, against us to cease, Wilt thou be angry with us forever? Doesn't it seem that way? Doesn't it seem as though God is angry with us always? Doesn't it seem as though um, sometimes I'm talking about when we come to the Word of God, we read the Word of God, walk away from the Word of God, and forget everything we read? Is that God's fault? Has God done something wrong? Has God's Word failed us in some way? I'm submitting to you tonight. It's not God. And it's not God's Word that's the problem. It's our hearts. Our hearts. Our hearts aren't right with God. Instead of confessing our sin, we embrace our sin. Instead of forsaking our sin, we boast in our sin. We laugh at our sin. America today is laughing at things we should be weeping over. Turn us, O God of our salvation, and cause Thine anger toward us to cease. 
Wilt thou be angry with us forever? It just seems that way. Wilt thou draw out thine anger to all generations, not only to me, but also to my children, and also to my children's children? Let me hasten to say very quickly tonight, this will mean more to you after tomorrow's studies, but let me say something. The things that you and I do, listen carefully, the things that you and I do in the kingdom of Jesus Christ are going to have a residual impact upon the future generations. Do you understand this? It's not just about what we're doing for us, but what we're trying or attempting to do for the next generation of believers that follow behind us, that come behind us. I'll never forget uh, Elder Bobby Poe. Some of you might not know him. He's just one of the spiritual giants of my day. And he gave me a poem one time that says it best. It's talking about an old man. The old man crossed in the twilight dim. The sullen stream held no fears for him. He turned when he reached the other side and builded a bridge to span the tide. Old man, cried a fellow pilgrim near, you're wasting your strength in building here. You've crossed the chasm deep and wide. Why build you a bridge at eventide? He said, There followeth after me today a youth whose feet must pass this way, this stream which has been as nothing to me. To that fair-haired boy may a pitfall be. He too must cross in the twilight dim. Good friend, I'm building this bridge for him. In a very real way, the labors that you and I are expending in the service of God today are going to have a residual impact upon the generation coming behind us because they're going to they're going to learn by our example. They're going to learn about our life what is the most important to us. And David is saying, "Lord, are you going to be are you going to be angry? Are you going to be uh, separated not only from us but also our children and our grandchildren don't you see he was looking at the urgency involved in revival there's an urgency in revival we need it it's not optional because without revival there's death well Lord is that your plan? to destroy us and future generations. Then he says, verse 6, Wilt thou revive us again, that thy people may rejoice in thee. Notice he didn't say that everybody rejoices in thee, but thy people may rejoice in thee. Then he says, Show us thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us thy salvation. Again, he refers to salvation. He's going to refer to it not only once, but twice, but also three times in this psalm. Because what he's describing is the saving work of God's mercy toward his people. Because were it not for the mercy of God, brothers and sisters, all of us would be hell-bound tonight. None of us would know anything about Christ, know anything about His Word, know anything about His church. 
I read a story one time about a famous missionary named David Livingston, and he he was uh, coming through a part of Africa where they uh, he observed that these uh, uh, these natives were out uh, uh, shooting marbles, and he's wondering where in the world did these natives get marbles? And he picked up one of the marbles that was you know a pretty good size stone that was pretty round. And he saw that it was a diamond. These native little boys were playing games with diamonds. Brothers and sisters, when we play games with the church or games with the gospel, games with the Word of God, we're playing with diamonds. God has given us the treasures that last, the treasures that are real, the treasures that are eternal. Why would we want to exchange those treasures for the things of this world that just are temporary and have a temporary level of satisfaction? That's what I want to say to young people. Why would you exchange uh, your pursuit of Christ for your pursuit of things in the world that can only satisfy you a very short time. Is that a good question? In periods of revival, you see a complete turning away from the world to serve the Lord. You see a complete absorption in the kingdom work of Christ. And we need revival today. Well, he says in verse 7, are you with me? I'd like you to read this out loud with me, verse 7. This is really the key verse we're going to study together tonight. Are you ready? Read verse 7 with me. Show us Thy mercy, O Lord, and grant us Thy salvation. I want to know more about that mercy. I want to know more about its connection to revival. And I want to know more about its impact in our day-to-day life. Now we're going to read the rest of the psalm to show you how he how he shows the blessing of revival comes back to the land. Remember, he talked about God's pleasure and blessing upon the land uh, back up in uh, verse uh, two, uh, 1 and 2. And he's going to close out the psalm the same way, but notice what he connects. He connects mercy with it. I will hear, verse 8, I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for He will speak peace unto His people and to His saints. But let them not turn again to folly. Let them not turn again to things that don't satisfy, things that are counterfeit, things that uh, are not profitable. Surely His salvation, third reference, surely His salvation is near to them that fear Him. That glory may dwell in our land. Stop right there. That glory may dwell in our land. That word dwell there means habitate. That, that, that word dwell is not a visit. It's not just a quick shot and then I'm gone. It's a dwelling place. It's, it's where God lives. God lives in the praise of His people. God lives in the heart of His people. God lives in the service and worship that is coming from His people. And, and I want you to notice the T-H-A-T. That, that. Uh, it could be worded this way. So that. For this reason, that is a purpose statement. Uh, so that. 
so that the glory may dwell in our land. I'm going to tell you right now, uh, revival is not about you. Revival is about the glory of God. I'm not talking about the residual benefits that come to God's people through revival. I'm talking about the primary function, the primary focus of revival is that which pleases and glorifies God. It's His glory that's at stake. And the prayer for revival is asking that God's glory once again be seen in the land. Once again be seen in the lives of God's people. Once again be seen in the worship services. Once again be seen in the evangelistic efforts of the church to minister the Gospel to those on the outside. Surely His salvation is near to them that fear Him, that glory may dwell in our land. And and notice there's four spiritual qualities that we're going to find here that I believe find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. I believe that these four spiritual qualities are uh, find their greatest expression in the reality of the person and work of Jesus Christ. More on that in just a minute. I'm telling you, this is really powerful. This, this is something that is like a stick of dynamite in my hand and the, the fuse is lit and I'm just wondering when it's going to explode because when we're talking about the glory of God, the greatest degree of that glory is seen in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we read in John chapter 1, verse 14 where He says uh, uh, that the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is tabernacled, lived among us. And we beheld His what? What? His glory! As the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So I believe that what David is seeing here is not only what would benefit his generation, but by faith he's able to see its ultimate fulfillment in the super David, the Messiah that would come a thousand years later. Mercy and truth are met together in Christ. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other in Christ. Truth shall spring out of the earth in Christ. Righteousness shall look down from heaven in Christ. Yea, the Lord shall give that which is good. And what's going to happen to your land? What's going to be the residual result of the reviving influence of these qualities in the life of God's people. Our land shall yield her increase. That's where church growth comes from. Righteousness shall go before Him and shall set us in the way of His steps. I believe that when we, have, when we meet with God, what is produced from that meeting is repentance, Confession and a purposeful dedication to holiness. Being separated unto God. These are the the supreme elements of what revival brings not only into our hearts but also into our churches, into our communities and ultimately our nation. These are the things that were important to David and they should be important to you and I. I want you to turn back to Psalm chapter 26, verse 8 on that point. In Psalm chapter 26, listen to what David says. 
He says in verse 8, Lord, I have loved the habitation of Thy house and the place where Thine honor dwelleth. Dwelleth. What is revival? It is when God dwells with His people. When God comes. When God dwells with His people. And you feel His presence. And you see the evidence of His presence when people believe in Christ. Because that's faith. God is the one that gives us faith to believe in Christ. When you see sinners repent from sin. When you see the church forgiving one another as we ought to forgive. When you see evangelistic zeal in the church. These are all things that tell us that tell us that God is alive and well in the church. He's alive and well in our hearts. And it's a powerful, powerful thing. Look at Psalm chapter 63, verses 1 and 2. Listen to this. Listen to this. I want you to read verse 2 with me. I'm going to read verse 1 and let's read verse 2 out loud together. O oh God, Thou art my God. Early will I seek Thee. Early will I seek Thee. Early will I seek Thee. Somebody says, Brother Jeff, I just don't have time to have a prayer life. I don't have time to have a, a personal uh, Bible study time. You, you, don't, you don't understand. I work ten hours a day and sometimes I have to drive uh, so far and I've got classes and I've got homework and I've got the chores to do and I've got all of these responsibilities. Well, how about getting up early? How about getting up before you have to begin those responsibilities? Oh God, Thou art my God. Early will I seek Thee. My soul thirsteth for Thee. My soul, my flesh longeth for Thee in a dry and a thirsty land where no water is. Are you ready? To see Thy power and Thy glory so as I have seen Thee in the sanctuary. Brothers and sisters, I want you to understand people today say, well, the church doesn't really matter much. I mean, it's just a place, you know, where... Some uh, folks go that are too old to do anything else, and and it really doesn't have uh, much to do with me or my life, or it doesn't have it doesn't really mean that much to God. Let me tell you something, friend. Jesus Christ said He loved the church. If He said He loved the church, you better be careful how you treat the church. I don't know about you, but I was raised a Texan boy, and Daddy taught us what used to be called chivalry. Now, I know this is old fogey and dark ages. I realize that. But my daddy would roll over in his grave if, if I was to uh, act in an unmanly, unkind way toward a woman, especially my wife and children, but toward another woman. Chivalry means... Uh, that inherent need to protect the woman, to respect the woman, uh, to to uh, uh, provide a safe environment for the woman. That's chivalry. Chivalry. And my daddy raised me that way. I slapped my sister one time. She slapped me first. But I slapped her back. And daddy gave me the whipping. He gave me the whipping. Because he said, we don't slap girls in this house. 
I'm glad he, you know, I thought he was kind of unfair. Of course, my sister was over there in the corner snickering. <laughs> you know, she she got a kick out of me getting with him because she hit me first. But see, my dad was teaching me something far deeper than a little sibling rivalry. He was teaching me that I better respect the the female. And... Uh, and we're we're losing sight of those type of things, aren't we? We're we're quickly losing sight of those kind of things, and I think part of that has come into the church. Part of that has affected the way we interact in the church of the living God. To me, when somebody says I don't love the church, they're saying to me I don't love Christ. When they say I don't love the church. They're saying to me, I don't care about Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ came to give His life for the church. Ephesians chapter 5. Jesus Christ called the church His wife. I don't know about you, but when I had my wife as my girlfriend, my high school sweetheart, nobody better say anything bad or ugly to her. You know why? Because I was duty bound to protect her virtue, her integrity much more as a wife. So when people start bad-mouthing the church, I wonder what Jesus says to them. I wonder how Jesus, as the husband, as the lover and the provider for the wife, I wonder what He thinks about people attacking His church and attacking His people. I don't believe He's approving of it. David says, I love you, Lord, and I'm going to tell you how I'm going to show you my love. I'm going to show you my love by coming to the sanctuary. I'm going to come where your praise is being lifted up. Your Word is being taught. Your Word is being believed. Your Word is being integrated into our day-to-day activity. I'm going to come to the place that is named with your name. That's why the Apostle Paul said in Hebrews chapter 10 verse 28, excuse me, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. Don't forsake it. Even when, you're, even when you don't feel like it. Even when there's a lot of other things you could do. Even, even when there's uh, other pressing matters in life. Don't forsake the assembling of the church because you're not here to honor men. It's not about you. It's about the glory of God. You are here tonight to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ and to thank Him for the great gift of salvation that came to us through His infinite and wonderful mercy. You and I are here tonight to learn more about Him so that we might have more communion with Him and fellowship with Him. And brothers and sisters, I'm talking about revival. Revival. Now, I could go to Haggai chapter 2. And I could go to a lot of other places, but I'm just going to go to one more Old Testament reading before I jump over into the New Testament to get some uh, wonderful points. I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 57. Uh, I could go there too. Uh, Isaiah 55 is where we're going to go. Uh, 
In Isaiah 55, beginning with verse 6, listen to what Isaiah says. And see if this doesn't have any resonation in your own heart. Maybe you're among those that I'm describing as cold and indifferent. The fires on your altar have gone out long ago. And you just feel like you're going through the motions. And for you to go to church, you feel like a hypocrite. Why? Why would you feel like a hypocrite coming to the sanctuary of God? Because you know you're not living as a Christian the rest of the week. Maybe. Maybe it's time we faced our sins and faced the real enemy. And the real enemy is us. It's our lackadaisical attitude toward the house of God and the things of God. And that's one reason we're in the shape we're in today. And I'm not just talking about here, brethren. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm I'm not just talking about here in Gadsden. I'm talking about nationwide. I'm talking about where I pastor. We're not doing what we could be doing in the service of God. And it's high time we recognized why. It's not God's fault and it's not God's Word's fault. It's because we are not responding to what we know is right and know is good. Listen to what he says. Are you with me? In Isaiah chapter 55, I'm going to tell you if this doesn't, if this doesn't light your fire tonight, your wood is wet. Your wood's wet. In Isaiah 55, he says in verse 6, Seek Ye, the Lord, while He may be found, call ye upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts and let him return to the Lord. And what is the Lord going to do? The Lord going to just kick him around and say, you dirty dog, why would you come into my house? Why would you come into my word? You you know, I, I, I know you. You hadn't prayed in months except to thank God for Mama's good cooking. That's not the kind of prayer he's talking about here, friends. He's talking about a person-to-person. He's talking about a personal talk with the Father right here about our sin. Okay, he says, let the wicked forsake his way, let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts, and let him return to the Lord. And this is what the Lord's going to do. Would you believe it? Would you believe it? Do you want a promise tonight? You want a guarantee tonight? A hundred percent guarantee? Here it is. And He will have mercy. Wow, that's powerful. He will have mercy upon Him and our God, for He will abundantly pardon. See, that's why I wanted to start with Psalm 85, because He connects mercy to the work of uh, revival. It's God's mercy that gives revival. None of us merit it. None of us earn it. But... uh, Here in Isaiah, we find another principle connected to mercy. It is when God's people are sick and tired of being sick and tired of sin. When God's people are sick and tired of the status quo. When God's people are ready to obey the revealed Word of God. When they are ready to repent of known sin. Listen carefully. When they are ready to repent of known sin. When God the Holy Spirit convicts your heart of a sin. You and I need to be ready at that very moment to confess that as a sin before God and plead the blood of Jesus Christ and plead for His mercy toward us as bankrupt sinners, begging Him for His mercy. Because that's the key element that you see in all revival. 
I love what William Cowper wrote. Now I know they tell me I went to England several years ago, and I told them I loved William Cowper, and they they laughed at me and told me they said, "Brother Jeff, <laughs> I can tell you're an American, uh, but it's not Cowper, it's Cooper." Did you know that? Have you ever heard that? It, it it's actually Cooper because the W is in in Old English is O, so his name is Cooper. William Cooper. It's spelled C-O-W, but they call it in in London, they call it Cooper. But see, when I was a boy, we didn't go milk the coos. <laughs> I'm sorry, we we just never, I had never even thought about calling a cow a coo. So for us here tonight, he's Cowper. William Cowper wrote this, and it's it's powerful stuff. William Cowper said this. I love this. There is a wideness in God's mercy, like the wideness of the sea, there is a kindness in His justice that is more than liberty. For the love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is so wonderfully kind. I'm telling you, that's God. That's the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a, a God of mercy. In fact, Paul even used that, didn't he? In 2 Corinthians 1, 3, he calls him the father of mercies. Have you ever noticed that? It's plural. Mercies. The, 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 the father, the God of mercies. Listen to this. He will have mercy upon him and our God, for he will abundantly pardon. He will abundantly pardon. How is that mercy? that's connected to revival, how does that mercy, how is that mercy demonstrated? How is it demonstrated? I submit to you tonight there's three ways. First, in the sending of Christ. Second, in the salvation of sinners. Third, in the sanctification of the saints. In the sending of Christ. That's exactly what we read in, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, because that uh, last reference to the, second, uh, the first coming of Christ, Behold, I send my messenger, uh, and he shall prepare, prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So the mercy of God is demonstrated in the sending of Jesus Christ. Turn. Don't turn. Don't turn. Stay right where you're at. But in Luke chapter 1, verse 78, listen to what the, this is the song of Zacharias. Listen to this. He says, Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring hath, uh, from on high hath visited us, to give the light to them that sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace, do you hear this? Do you hear this prophecy? Do you see how God is connecting mercy to the sending of Jesus Christ? Not only in the sending of Jesus Christ, but also in the salvation of sinners. I find it interesting that uh, there's so many verses that come to my mind. Ephesians 2 and 4, 1 Peter 1 3, uh, Luke 15 18, uh, Galatians 4 4. I mean, there's just a ton of these verses in the in the New Testament to refer to the mercies of God. Remember what Paul said in Titus chapter 3, verse 5, 
uh, 4, 4 and 5, he says, But after that the kindness of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His own mercy. Hath He what? Saved us. How? By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. I'm going to tell you something here, friends. I believe, I believe that the mercy of God is not just connected to the sending of Christ, but it's also connected to the salvation of every sinner. God who is rich in mercy. Ephesians 2.4, right? Do you follow me? Do you see how the mercy of God is connected in some way to the salvation of sinners? To the sending of Christ, to the salvation of sinners, and also to the sanctification of the saints. That's why Paul says in Romans 12.1, he says, I beseech thee, brethren, by the mercies of God, that ye present your bodies a living sacrifice. That's why he said that. By the mercies of God. By the mercies of God, we are able to offer upon the altar, offer our body, our lives, to the service of our great King. I'm going to tell you, that's where revival comes from. Revival comes from uh, God to a people who are devoted to Him. Now, define sanctification. Well, when I say sanctification, what am I talking about? The word simply means to be separated, right? To be set apart. To be set apart. That's what God did for us positionally in Christ, didn't He? He set us apart for salvation. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 He says, God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit. That's where it comes from. There, that sanctifying work of the Spirit. He separated us from fallen humanity and set us apart from the world. Sanctification. Positional. Positional. But then there's a practical. There's a practical sanctification. Romans chapter 6. 7 and 8, actually. Uh, that, that practical aspect of of uh, sanctification is what sets you apart from the rest of the world around you. Can I ask you a question? This kind of this kind of hurts, stings a little bit. But can I ask you? If you were taken to court today and the charge against you was being a Christian, would there be enough evidence in your life to convict you? Would there be enough evidence to convict you of that crime? You see, we've lost sight of responsibility, especially among the old Baptists. And I, I'm not trying to criticize our people. I'm just telling you the truth. One of the reasons our churches are in the condition we're in today is because we have spent so much time emphasizing the sovereignty of God and salvation, we have not balanced that with the truth of practical godliness. Practical instruction on Christian marriage, raising godly children, uh, ministering to one another and to the community. We, we just haven't balanced the teaching. Therefore, we've got a lopsided view of what grace means. But when revival comes, there's a wonderful balance there. And it's always connected to His mercy. It's always connected to Him. He is the fountain and the spring from which uh, all revival flows. All revival flows from Him. 
I'm already out of time tonight, but if you don't mind, just go with me to one verse in the New Testament and, and I'll close tonight. This is a good foundation for what I'm going to teach tomorrow. Uh, but in First uh, Peter chapter 1, would you please go with me there? This is a very familiar, very familiar text. But in First Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 3, listen to what Peter says about this connection between mercy, the salvation of sinners, the sending of Christ, the salvation of sinners, and the sanctifying of the saints. Listen to how he puts this together. In 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to His abundant mercy. By the way, can I tell you this? The word abundant there, the word abundant there, it comes from a root word, pleroma, which means it never diminishes. It never diminishes. That's what that word abundance means. You know, if I'm standing before you and I've got a glass of water and I drink the water, I've diminished the amount of water in the glass. Uh, that would be opposite of abundant. The word abundant comes from a word that means I can drink the water out of the glass, set the glass down, and the water comes back to the top again. It's abundant. It's full. It's full. Always full. Never diminishing. So he says, Blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath begotten us again unto a lively hope uh, by this abundant mercy has begotten us again to a lively hope, a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Hallelujah. That's God's sovereignty right there. What's this? To an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, a faith that's not away, reserved in heaven for you. I want you to understand this morning, that, that uh, this evening, that that is God's sovereignty. That's God's sovereign power, sovereign grace, sovereign mercy. And then he says in verse 5, who we are kept by the power of God. That's sovereign power. And we are kept by the power of God through faith and through salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. I'm telling you, that's all God's sovereignty. But then he says in verse 6, wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be. Have you ever noticed the if need be? If it's necessary? If it's needed? For you to suffer? I'm going to send suffering. God is never going to send sunshine to your soul if your soul needs rain. Not going to do it. We are greatly rejoicing, though now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptation. I wonder if there's anybody here in heaviness. I wonder if anybody here has a burdened heart. I wonder if anybody here has recognized tonight, maybe in a more keen way or keen manner, maybe I'm not doing the best I should be doing. Maybe I'm not giving as much as I should be giving of myself to the cause of Christ. And it and it's kind of pricking. It's kind of it's it's kind of a uh, 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 hitting your heart tonight. Listen to Peter. We are in heaviness through manifold temptation. Listen, listen, listen. That the trial of your faith, the trial of your faith. Remember, we were talking about the sovereignty of God. Now we're talking about our responsibility. Here is what where the rubber meets the road this 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 evening. That the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with with fire, might be found to the praise. <laughs> might be found to the praise and the honor and the glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love, in whom though now ye see Him not, yet believing. We believe in Him. We believe, we trust in Him that His glory 
shall be manifest again among us. Ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of what? Full of what? Full of glory. Whose glory? The glory of men? The glory of denominate? No. The glory of Jesus Christ. That's what I believe a revival is all about. Revival is the restoration of the glory of Jesus Christ in the proclamation of the Gospel, in the singing of the sacred hymns, in the prayers of God's saints, in the conversion of sinners, in the sanctifying influence of the Holy Spirit among us that separates us from a bankrupt world and causes us to shine as lights in a dark world for the glory of God. That's what Jesus had in mind when He said in Matthew 5.16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Brothers and sisters, I'm telling you, it's high time. We demand that there be a balance brought to the pulpit between God's sovereignty and our responsibility in it. And I think that's the beginning of what brings true revival. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your goodness to us tonight. Thank You for Your Word and thank You for each and every one that is here. I ask, Father, that You would open our hearts, that we would receive the Word in meekness and and in truth because it's truly an evidence that You are with us. It's an evidence that You care for us, that You love us in spite of our weakness, in spite of our coldness. Oh God, I ask that You would send again the fires of heaven upon Your people that the glory of God would fill the earth, that the land would give her increase, that we would rejoice in Your mercy forevermore. We ask that You would bless us to confess our sins before You, Lord, to turn from those sins and to serve You as we ought. Send the fires of revival, but Lord, begin that work in me. And it's in the name of Jesus Christ we now pray and say, Amen.